How you entrepreneurs? Today we have Kerry Lutz. As he calls it, he's a recovering attorney and a serial entrepreneur. Also in this podcast, you're going to hear how he's done over 5,000 episodes on his own podcast. He started podcasting when podcasting originally started. I mean, he's written four books. He he walks through the whole process of him jumping in from being an attorney to saying, you know what, this is not my life for me. I'm going to get into podcasting. And that was expanding now. So if for yourself if you're looking what's next or maybe i'm not finding enjoyment in what i'm doing or what i went to college for i want something else take a listen please subscribe and and of course uh, tell your friends Welcome to the road to growth, success of an entrepreneur. We've raised the bar. Learn firsthand from successful business owners and create your own path to success. I'm going to show you how great I am. It's time to hit the road to growth with team lead of the Enriquez Group, Realtor Vinny. All right, Carrie, Carrie Lutz. Uh, so tell everyone about you. You're a uh, entrepreneur. You're a, you've been a podcaster for nine years. It seems like you're on the cutting edge. Nine years. That's when podcast marketing getting going right yeah well there's a few who've been doing it longer but i've met all the people who've been doing it uh, forever and you know i was an attorney the uh, financial crisis came along entrepreneur always started up numerous businesses over the years a lot of them were successful and really just got tired of what i was doing i was always interested in radio and but at the time like radio is really difficult to break into still is but it's dying and then this podcasting thing came to my attention i started listening to them and uh as all people that get themselves into trouble always ask the same question when they see something they want to do how hard can it be and it's like how hard can it be to podcast and the answer was not really very hard (laughs) but the problem is to be a good podcaster to build an audience you actually have to know some things and you can only acquire them with experience. Um, I was very fortunate. I had a mentor, uh, Valerie Geller. She is a radio consultant, probably one of the top ones in the world. And I've been working with her since the beginning. And, you know, people listen to people on the radio who talk and they say, well, they can talk. So can I, I can do what they're doing. And, What you quickly realize when you start doing it as a profession is it ain't quite that easy and it requires a lot more thought and building of skills that you wouldn't necessarily have. And uh, when you do it, you do it well. It's really magical. So, you know, my history, I just really wanted to do something, talk about the economy. I was always into economics since I was at one time a econ major in uh, undergrad uh, before I went on to law school in the real world. And, you know, I wanted to kind of key people into what was happening with the financial crisis. And I've interviewed, I've done over 6,000 segments since then, 6,000 shows and had, you know, hundreds and hundreds, thousands of guests on. So I've acquired a few skills along the way. So have you always had that kind of mindset where I'm just going to go, go for it? Or just something that's kind of happened over time? No, well, if you don't go for it, you don't get it. And um, I remember I was in law school and involved in student government, which is just any kind of student government is a monumental waste of time, honestly. But hey, I had, had a couple extra hours each week. 
And the president of our student uh, council said, uh, if you don't ask, you don't get, in reference to asking the administration for stuff. So I actually, like, did stuff. I should have known about politics back then. I got, like, new copy machines put in the library because the old ones broke constantly. I got new payphones installed because there actually were payphones. Dating myself when I went to law school. I mean, I saw payphones yesterday, by the way. Well, it's the funniest thing. I was at an airport or someplace, <clears throat> and there's a guy with a little kid saying, now, this is a payphone, Tommy. <laughs> and when I was a little kid and we wanted to call people, we didn't have cell phones. And we used to have to put money in the slot, and then we could call people. And uh, you know now nobody even answers their phone anymore. <laughs> you know everything's texting, emailing. I mean, when, now they have the audio text too. I have people start yeah. doing that to me now. So yeah, it's yeah, right. So it's like <laughs> it was so quaint to see that, but it was a big deal in my time because you know like uh, we didn't have enough payphones in the law school. I was like, it was a bull in a china shop. Like I always went after what I wanted, didn't always get it. But got something. I mean, if you don't do it, then you're never going to get it. That's all. So where 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 did you grow up? Where were you born? Was was uh, it uh... born in uh, Essex County, New Jersey? <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, grew up there. Moved to New York City at uh, 17. I thought that was the place to be. Went to Pace University, then New York Law School. Lived in New York for upwards of 15 years. Went to uh, Westchester County and then uh, several years back moved down to South Florida. Did did you always have that game plan put in place? Because being in law for forty years, it seems like you might have had a, had a, some sort of passion there. Was it always a passion to kind of transition into law, or was that never it just kind of happened? Mm, you know, like my family had a legal printing business, and I went to college and I worked there like mostly full-time. I was dealing with lawyers all the time. And, <clears throat> you know, I uh, said, gee, if I was a lawyer, I could be a lot more effective and it would open up other opportunities for the business. So I went to law school, full-time law school, and I worked full-time throughout most of it. And, you know, got my, uh, got my JD and got admitted, and it really did open things up. But I never really wanted to practice. I did it several times in my life. I just don't get gratification out of the practice of law. It's too corrupt. It's too slow. It's too stupid. It's um, You're dealing with institutions that go back to like the 1500s. And the only thing that's changed is they now have a website. And they've got a computer network. So they, But they take forever. You know, uh, <clears throat> you know there's all sorts of private options now because the courts are so corrupt and bogged down and incapable of rendering quick decisions and justice delayed is justice denied and I just seen so much of that in my life I just wanted out so I really was more an entrepreneur with a legal bent um, but having the legal background the legal training is a is an asset to anybody in any business well, it's it's so funny. I I had a, another gentleman on the, a different platform, but he was uh, he's also an attorney up in L.A. And he says the reason why he got into uh, law was because he was in this negotiation for his uh, one of his friends for an artist, right, trying to get a contract put together. 
and everything was finalized. But then he gets a call a day later from the attorney on the other side and his heart dropped. He was like, oh, my gosh, what happened? And he picked up the phone. And he goes, that's the feeling that I want when, when I made a phone call because you have so much power behind having a law degree. I was like, oh, that's an interesting way of, of having this. So I'm assuming being an entrepreneur kind of helped you out drastically. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, like I, I don't like to do contracts and I don't like to represent myself uh, in any transaction. I think that's always a mistake. You know, the old saying, a person who represents themselves in court has a fool for a client and an idiot for a lawyer. <laughs> so, you know, that's, but, but the ability to logically break down statements, arguments, and analyze them for uh, inconsistencies is like a lifelong uh, asset. Not everybody gets it, but, um, you know, for me, it made a big difference. And, uh, and really, uh, I've seen uh, people, masters in the courtroom, who really uh, just take control. It just wasn't for me. So I did, you know, transactional stuff and uh, not very challenging from a legal standpoint, but very profitable and led me to where I am now. So. It's like the ultimate training for being a podcaster is being a lawyer. You've got to think on your feet, have answers, answer questions, ask questions, analyze the information you're getting. It's really a perfect training for this. What sort of businesses were you were you creating? What kind of uh, entrepreneurship uh, avenues were you going towards uh, during your <clears throat> legal years and I guess your current years too? Yeah, well, you know, I started out my family's legal printing company partners with my brother. We literally uh, couldn't stand one another after five, six years of that. So sold the company, maybe it was 10 or 12, sold the company to my largest competitor, myself, without an investment bank or a broker or anything. Um, then I kind of practiced law for a few years, found it very unsatisfying, unfulfilling. It was fairly financially uh, successful at it, but not enough. Um, but we were successful from day one. I mean, but the things I liked best about practicing law was creating an email newsletter that brought in business that I sent to 70,000 law firms every month. And every time I sent it out, got five, 10 cases into the office, marketing campaigns, things like that. The actual practice of law I found to be stultifying and boring. And then I was... Uh, Involved, uh, I had a lot of uncollected judgments in my uh, printing business from deadbeat attorneys uh, who didn't pay their bills. So I created a system for locating bank accounts in New York State, and that turned out to be wildly successful. That led me to other ventures. We were buying and selling uh, charged-off credit card debt, distressed assets, and that was <clears throat> highly profitable. And like I said, everything runs its course. I don't want to do anything too long there might come a point where i don't want to really podcast anymore maybe uh maybe 10 years will be enough but as long as i enjoy it and uh, get out of bed every day to go do it um you know it's a great business you're in your home I have my home studio here and uh you know i never thought working at home would be such a great experience but it really really is and uh, i wouldn't trade it so, I mean, it sounds like from the outside looking in that when when you have your idea on something, your mind on something, you kind of just go for it. Is that how the transition was when you started the podcast, when you started the different businesses? Was just, I'm just going to go for it? Or is it like a, a building up stage where you go, I had this idea 
and then six months, a year, kind of slowly working towards it. Uh, that's an interesting question that nobody's quite asked me before. So I'm an idea person, but it's not enough to just have an idea because ideas are cheap, cheapest commodity in the world. Uh, everyone has great ideas, but the number of people that actually pursue them and turn them into uh, uh, profitable enterprises is very, very slim. So, for instance, like uh, this was uh, 40 years ago, uh, credit reports were in their infancy, and I realized that uh, the way to avoid deadbeats is to run their credit. So, uh, But there was no program there for PCs. And I told my friend about it. He created a batch program on an Apple II Plus to be able to download credit reports. You just put in your data, let the thing run, and then it downloads them. You could print them out after, or we didn't have email then, but you could save the files, whatever. And, you know, the program worked. wasn't, it had some bugs, but I never saw the value in it. And that program was the first of its kind, and it became a multi-billion dollar industry for credit reports once the FICO score was created. And I could have been there, but I didn't see the opportunity in it. So ideas don't, in and of themselves, unless you really believe in them and pursue them, they mean absolutely nothing. So, but then I think what you're asking is also the planning stage. So when you get an idea, especially when you're a creative type like I am, it's real easy to fall in love with the idea and uh, out of love with reality. I mean, certain ideas I've had are just have failed because they weren't workable or they just weren't that great. So a good idea, there's nothing like it. It's a high, an emotional high to me, but it's got to be tempered by reality and the ability to implement. If you can't implement your idea, you're going to go nowhere. Your idea will go nowhere and you'll wind up with nothing. You'll wind up uh, worse off than when you started because you'll have had a failure and you'll, you'll really just not, uh, it'll be frustrating and it'll inhibit further ad adventures, further, uh, further ventures. You know, you can't be afraid to fail. Uh, failure, you know, Edison always, the cliche, it took him 10,000 different tries before he found the tungsten filament for the uh, incandescent light bulb, which changed the world. And they asked him, wasn't it frustrating going through 10,000 different materials? And he said, you know, it wasn't because every time uh, I eliminated one that didn't work, I got closer to the one that would work. And that's what you have to look at. Failure is just the best teacher. You don't learn from your successes. Uh, you kind of bask in your success, but you learn from your failures. Failure is the most important tool you have, and you're only a failure unless you, if you believe you're a failure. Otherwise, you're learning, and you're getting that much closer to success. I know these are all cliches. They're kind of trite-sounding, but it's extremely true. Uh, the problem in our society today often is parents don't want their children to experience the consequences of their failure. And, you know, without learning without failure is like uh, Christianity without the devil. You know, it just doesn't work. You need the good, you need the good with the bad, you need the bad with the good. It's, I mean, these are 
these are cliches, but they're cliches that need to be reminded because some people get bogged down in the failure and it's, it's about growth. I mean, with your, your entrepreneur mindset, I know with the podcast platform, you uh, brought on help for someone in the radio industry to kind of get the, the ball rolling for you in the podcast. Has that always been your mindset when you're starting a new platform to find someone that's knowledgeable that, about that platform so you can build it out? Well, so, uh, like, yeah, I learned how to ski late in life, relatively late in my mid-20s, but uh, my wife uh, said, you know, unless you take private lessons, you're not going to be able to do it. And they were expensive, and she was really into skiing, honestly. I wasn't that into skiing myself at the time, but I got pretty proficient at it. And I took private lessons. Every time we'd go, take a private lesson. And uh, that taught me something. And my father, who was a really good businessman, really uh, was a mentor to me, used to say, you have to know when you don't know. And when you don't know, find somebody who does. Now, sometimes, like in podcasting, there really weren't a lot, but I found Cliff Ravenscraft, the podcast answer man, took his course. I had been posting, I had been doing a pay-for-play radio show posting the episodes and being thrilled to get 12 downloads and then went to Cliff. Cliff Ravenscraft, and I was getting thousands, tens of thousands of downloads per month. And then it went to hundreds of thousands. And, uh, you know, sometimes the person that you need that knowledge from doesn't exist. And then you have to create it yourself. You have to learn it. Um, but it's always been the case. I mean, I was big in computers from 1978 on. I had the Apple II Plus was my first computer. And I spent $8,000 on a 10 megabyte hard drive, which died like six months after I started using it. Um, but by that point, hard drives were down to $1,000. So uh, using the technology and everything that's out there, you know, you're able to do things that you could never do before. So really, knowledge is important, but you don't want to do paralysis, you know, by analysis. Uh, a lot of people will come up with this idea and they'll keep analyzing it and analyzing it. At some point, you just got to roll the dice. Um, you know, as uh, Tom Cruise said in uh, the movie Risky Business, what the, got to say what the F and just go for it. And if you don't, then you're going to fail because you never tried. Better to fail after trying, you know, than to have never tried at all. I mean, it's a I think it's kind of an adaptation of the thing. Better to have loved than have never loved at all. Uh, but if you don't try, you're not going to succeed. And eventually you're going to reach a point where you have to either say yes or no. And, you know, one of the things uh, that you need to go through, the biggest analysis is risk. How much money am I putting in? Am I betting the ranch? My brother always used to say, you know, JR was a reckless speculator on Dallas but he never bet the ranch. And sometimes you get an idea and you just have to bet the ranch. Um, I've never fully bet the ranch, but I've bet part of it. And But the key is minimize risk. And technology enables you to do that now because it reduces your startup costs. Also um, enables you to get investors or help to, uh, to finance your entity and not have to give up much. You know, this crowdsource platforms, what do you give them? You send them, you know, pre-sell the product. 
I mean, pre-selling a physical product is a great thing. Selling physical products really hard in this world. Uh, selling technological products is all but impossible for smaller companies, and yet thousands of companies every year try it. I mean, uh, so getting back to it, you got to take the risk. If you don't, then you're always going to wonder, would it have worked? And then you'll see also great ideas often are picked up unconsciously, whatever, throughout the world, and somebody else will do your idea if you don't. That's almost a given. As good as your idea might be, there's still like 8 billion people on the planet. It's inevitable that someone is going to come up with that idea someplace, and unlike you, they will implement it. So you better implement it and not worry about it and give it a give it a good try. Um, set a deadline. Have goals. You know, you got to have goals. I know you're already talking about the idea of failure, and we've talked about this multiple times already. What are some of the biggest so-called failures that you've had to learn from and how you kind of fight through them? Yeah, I had We were in the printing business. And I had this brilliant idea that we could typeset resumes for college bookstores all over the place. And I had hundreds of them lined up, chains. And it just didn't work because it was impractical. And that was when you printed resumes when they weren't digital. Um, <clears throat> that was a bad one. I thought having a retail copy shop would be a great thing because we were already in the printing business. And it's a whole nother business. Uh, my father, you know, my mentor used to say, anytime you get into a new business, you're going to pay for lessons. And I paid for lessons. Those were failures. And, you know, they weren't major failures. But, you know, I've had numerous others throughout uh, life. It's just a normal thing. And you shake it off, you learn from it, most importantly, and then you go on. Was was that your dad then still the idea of learning from a failure, or was that something that you you learned over time? Well, you know, I'm sure he tried to instill it, but, you know, there's this thing called the, the ego, and it tends to get in the way of these things, and it's like uh, you got to get past the self-anger, the self-loathing when you fail, and you got to go back and look, do a post-mortem on why you failed, and uh, what you could have done better, how it could have become a success. Uh, I think that's a continual process that you need to be doing as an entrepreneur. And, you know, you can't allow your fears to stop you from growing and to stop you from succeeding. That's really what it comes down to. So talking about the growth that you've accumulated over, over your many years, if you could look back at that 17-year-old kid or 18-year-old kid in New York, what kind of advice would you give that that person? <laughs> Learn to code, I think. But <laughs> never could quite pick up coding. Um, you know, just that uh, really you need to uh, get past your failures. Just because you fail at something doesn't make you a failure. You're only a failure if you believe you're a failure. And uh, it's okay to take risks. Don't be arrogant. And don't let the uh, optimism of youth blind you to uh, to the risks that are out there. Uh, part of uh, part of maturing as an individual is just getting rid of keeping the enthusiasm of lo- of youth while shedding the delusions of it. And um, that's why most people don't succeed until their forties. Um, you know, I was successful pretty much all along, uh, but. Always try something new. Like, don't get in a rut. Like, 
when I was driving to work, I would just take a different route rather than my regular tried and true route just because I don't want to be in a rut. And, um, you know, it might be going 10 miles out of the way to get to work, uh, but I would do it and just to see, find new places, new things, and, you know, always, always be growing. You got to grow. And that means uh, investing in human capital, your human capital. So whether it's acquiring knowledge through courses, through books, through uh, periodicals, newspapers. I used to, when there were such things as newspapers, I guess they still exist, but nobody reads them. Uh, before the web, you could aggregate like, you know, hundreds of articles a day with no problem. Um, I'd read three, four newspapers a day on the train ride to New York, and I would uh, be reading books, all these things. So you got to keep learning, and you got to have a curiosity, joy for life, in order to keep growing. Uh, so many people believe that you graduate from college and your learning is done. And really, the truth is your learning just begins when you get out of college. And you can get some good tools in college. I mean, kids today, I would just say, go to college however you can. If you're not destined for the Ivy League and you know you got the family connections and the money is, is no issue, but if it's an issue, don't go to college. Um, automatically evaluate your options you know right now if i was like uh, thinking about it like when i went to college my whole college cost fifteen thousand bucks my law school education was three years fifteen thousand dollars plus assorted fees but just call it fifteen thousand i made back that fifteen thousand for the investment in law school in less than six months working at my business um now the costs are so astronomical that you really need to question it. Uh, you know, if I was deciding I didn't want to go to college, I would learn how to fix electric vehicles because nobody knows how to do it. I would look at jobs, professions where there's a shortage of workers and there's going to be a permanent shortage of workers who know how to fix electric cars. And hey, there's nothing wrong with being an auto mechanic, but if you're a Tesla mechanic, you don't even get your hands dirty most of the time, except when you pull the tires off, work on the underside of the car. Most of the time, you're poking around. You don't even get dirty. Yeah, I think the whole college idea is maybe an archaic way of looking at things. I mean, picking up a trade or picking up different avenues like that could be a even greater benefit. Um, I mean, I, I, one of the things you just said a little while ago, I thought was very interesting with the idea that you take different routes uh, to work. Was that something you do on a regular basis, a weekly basis, a monthly basis? Because I know, and, I, and I'm, I'm assuming you probably have heard of him. There's a Dr. Joe Dispenza who talks about the whole idea of being a machine and how we're just a simple program. And you have to kind of readjust what you do on a daily thing to get out of the so-called rut. And so I don't know if this was an idea that you've kind of built over time or, yeah. I just came up with it on my own one day. I said, you know, I go just like, I'm just doing the same thing over and over again. And the more you do the same thing over and over again, you develop unconscious uh, proficiency for it. First, you get consciously proficient, and then you're so good at it, you're unconsciously proficient. And that's the way you should be in any profession. But it's boring as hell going to work the same route, stopping at the same damn traffic light every single day. 
where I lived in Westchester, there were like six or eight different ways to drive into Manhattan. And, you know, some were minor variations. Some I found, like, I didn't even know they existed, shortcuts and all that. You're never going to find the shortcut if you keep going the same way every day. You have to experiment. And, you know, sometimes it was like driving over uh, railroad tracks uh, to get from one road to the other, not breaking the law too seriously. And other times it was, hey, instead of taking the West Side Highway down, I'm just going to cut through Harlem, see what's there. This was before there was ways and traffic apps to tell you uh, the fastest way to go, in theory, anyway. And, you know, it just, uh, that variation, like people that go to, the, I mean, I do go to, like, the same coffee place in the morning because my friends are there, but I don't go every day. And sometimes I'll go to another one. It's just like it's too easy to fall into a rut. And then your conscious mind, you're just kind of living by default. You're not really conscious. You're just following a program, as you said. So what's next for, for yourself, for the, the podcast, for new businesses? What's, what's next for everything? Well, I've, I've kind of uncovered an uh, area, um, a niche that uh, Wall Street has abandoned. These small, micro-sized, small, medium-sized, small, medium-sized publicly traded companies, uh, no analysts cover them anymore because there's no money in it for Wall Street because there's no money in uh, stock trading anymore. Basically, stock trades are free. So um, basically, what I've come up with is a platform for companies to digitally market to potential shareholders, investors, because these small companies are the next microwave Microsofts and Googles and Apples of the future, maybe not to that degree, but especially mining companies. They do a lot of clients up in uh, Vancouver, Canada, British Columbia. And, you know, finding these uh, people, it's all data mining, state of the art data science modeling. And it's the future of this whole thing. And uh, kind of pioneered this. Nobody else has thought of it yet. Uh, for what I'm doing, it's complicated. There's a lot of moving parts. It's costly, but the alternative is much more costly because these companies can't raise capital. And the reason why is if your stock trades at 20 cents and trades a thousand shares a day, nobody cares about it. You're not liquid. So you need more shareholders and more interest in your stock in order to make it go higher, A, if it deserves to, but to make your stock liquid and an appropriate investment for larger investors. So that's kind of what I've been working on now, as well as developing the platform of interviewing uh, CEOs of, of uh, you know, junior miners and such and helping them get their message out, doing webcasts. You know, webcasting is big now, but um, it's going to be so much bigger. Because right now, like, uh, there's a trend, trade shows, the trade show industry is just not long for this world. Uh, it's too costly. You send representatives from a company anywhere. You got the booth. You got to ship all this stuff. You got to put them up. You got to feed them. You got to transport them back and forth. So trade shows are uh, are going to go um, some faster than others. There are shows where you want to get out, like the podcasting shows, and see people see what other people are doing. But honestly, you know, that's more a social thing than anything else to me at this point. 
So I see these trade shows, the webcast taking it, taking them out, and then they're so much more effective and targeted. I mean, I don't have to spend, you know, if I'm going to Vegas, it's five and a half hours from Florida to get there. And then I'm at the show. It's boring as hell. Half the speakers don't know how to speak. And and irrelevant, a lot of the material, most of what's going on in the sessions, I couldn't care less about. And then uh, cost me, you know, $1,000, $1,500 for hotels and food. And then I'm uh, spending another five hours flying back. And could I have spent that time better? Uh, so they've got these virtual passes and stuff. But I really think in the end, the trade show industry is really doomed. Hmm. So if someone's looking to listen to your podcast, getting more information about uh, what, what you're going to be doing next, what's the best platform for them to reach out? What's the best platform to follow you? Yeah, sure. Uh, just go to the website, financialsurvivalnetwork.com. We're on YouTube. We're on iTunes. We're on every major uh, podcast platform. So financialsurvivalnetwork.com or just Google Kerry, K-E-R-R-Y, Lutz, L-U-T-Z, and radio, and you come up with hundreds of thousands of entries for me. And, you know, that's uh, that's the best place to go. It's got all of my archived works, over 6,000 shows. And, uh, you know, that's uh, you can send me an email with any questions, comments. If you're looking for a mentor, um, got maybe one spot left. That would be kl at kerrylutz.com. Perfect. Well, thank you, uh, Carrie, for being on the platform. Thank you for everyone listening. Hopefully you got some some great, great information, great tidbits. Just pushing through. And I think the biggest thing we said so many times is it's not a failure if you keep pushing through and learn from it. So totally. thank you, everyone. Any, any final words, Carrie? No, just say thanks so much for uh, having me on the show. It was a pleasure. Perfect. All right. Please subscribe, please share, and tell your friends, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Road to Growth, Success of an Entrepreneur. Please like, subscribe, and stay connected. Visit www.TheEnriquezGroup.com. Yeah, I created a website. Hope to see you again next week. The Enriquez Group, signing off.